0: Great to see you. Uh, We are this morning continuing our series, A House by Name. We're doing a survey of the whole of the Old Testament and uh, the part we're up to today, the title is No King in Israel. We're up to the book of of Judges and um, this might reflect some current issues. We might ask ourselves at the moment in British politics who's actually in charge and that is kind of the question posed in the book of Judges as well. Who's really in charge here? Let me remind you of the story so far and for those of you who are here for the first time. uh, Where we got to last week, Richard was was preaching and we got to the story of Joshua. Moses has died, Joshua is commissioned, Joshua is to lead the people of God into the promised land. Joshua chapter 1 verse 5, the Lord speaks to Joshua and says, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. And then we get to the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24, and it says, After these things, after they'd entered the land, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance, at Timnath-Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. And Eliezer, son of Aaron, died and was buried at Gibeah, which had been allotted to his son Phinehas in the hill country of Ephraim. What we have here is a real turning of the ages, with the death of Joshua, no one, with the exception of Caleb, who we'll come to in a few minutes, no one is left who has personal experience of having been a slave in Egypt and then spending those 40 years in the wilderness. And we see there's another big transition because the priesthood passes to another generation. Aaron, the first high priest, brother of Moses, leader of the people. He dies, his son Eliezer becomes priest. Now Eliezer himself is dead and the priesthood passes to Phinehas, Aaron's grandson. So there's this massive generational transformation and it's maybe a bit like for us in the UK. We, in our history, are so shaped in many ways still by the First World War. Every town, every village you go to uh, has a war memorial with, it always staggers me how many names, are li- go to a little village in Dorset and how many names are listed of people who died from those little villages in the First World War. Our whole kind of culture, national sense of identity, so profoundly shaped by the First World War. But there is no one left with personal memories of the First World War. Nobody left who actually fought through the trenches And that's kind of how it was for the people of Israel at this time. Their story completely shaped by slaves in Egypt, Exodus, 40 years in the wilderness, entering the promised land. But there was no one left with personal memories of what that actually looked like and meant. There's also a sense of real completion here. We're told that they bring Joseph's bones up and bury them in the plot of land which had been purchased from the sons of Shechem. Now, that complete something which we read about in Genesis 50, end of the book of Genesis. Joseph has gone down to Egypt, become prince of Egypt. His brothers have followed him in the end. You know the story, they've been rescued from famine, living in, in Egypt, in security and safety there. But just as, about as Joseph is about to die, Genesis 50, he says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. It's actually interesting that both uh, Joseph and Joshua die at the age of 110. There's probably something symbolic about that. I need to look that one up, but just to note that. But anyway, uh, Joseph... Is in Egypt, prince of Egypt, his family living there in security and comfort. But Joseph knows that things are going to go bad for his family in Egypt. And he knows that God's plan is they don't stay in Egypt, but go back home, go to the promised land. And so he says, keep my bones and when you leave. And so hundreds of years later... The people of Israel leave Egypt finally, and they carry the bones of Joseph for 40 years in the wilderness. And finally, when they are established in the Promised Land, they lay Joseph's bones to rest in the plot of ground that was bought from the sons of Shechem. And so there's this kind of completion. And this is where we find ourselves at this point in the story. God is working his plan out. And of course, the story is left on a cliff edge. Uh, what is going to happen next? And it seems that things are set up for success. There's been a transition of the priesthood. Uh, Joseph's bones have been laid to rest. They've entered the promised land. But then you turn the page from Joshua to the book of Judges, and things are not nearly that straightforward. The book of Judges represents a period of history of about 240, 250 years between the death of Joshua and Samuel, the great prophet who arises. And it tells us some of the most Familiar stories in the Bible, stories that many of us know so well, stories of of Gideon and stories of of Samson, famous stories. But it is also in some ways perhaps the most troubling, maybe even the most depressing book in the Bible. And there can be real Christian embarrassment about the book of Judges because uh, it is so violent. A number of years ago, we were teaching through the whole of the book of Judges and we got to Mother's Day and we were at the end of the book of Judges where there was this horrific story. I don't, don't think Donna's forgiven me yet. Have you still carrying the scars? We thought we just stuck with the schedule. And it, Mother's Day message that, that year was about the gang rape and murder of a woman and how she's cut up into pieces and her body parts are sent through Israel. It's a great Mother's Day message. <laughs> she, she's, she's, and I, Donna reminds me of that often. Unforgiven. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry. Just trying to be faithful to the Word of God. So... There are some absolutely horrific stories here in the book of Judges, which can be very difficult for us to deal with. There are lots of wars and lots of individual acts of brutality. And it is difficult to deal with, and it can be easy for us to reduce the book of Judges just to kind of the familiar Sunday school stories about Gideon and about Samson, which even themselves are full of violence, which tends to get sanitized and downplayed. But the book of Judges, as the whole Bible, is for Christians. When we turn to the New Testament, get to Hebrews 11, we read in Hebrews 11 the great catalogue of heroes of the faith, the people who are meant to inspire us in our Christian walk. And it includes a number of the judges, the leaders described in this book. So the book of Judges is for us, it is for Christians. What the book of Judges does is describe what is a complex situation. There had been clarity. People of Israel, slaves in Egypt. The Lord calls Moses, great deliverer. Moses comes, speaks to Pharaoh, finally leads the people out of Egypt. There's a clarity about it. Stop being slaves, come into freedom, enter your inheritance. None of it's easy. It's all difficult. They keep messing it up. They spend 40 years in the wilderness when they should have got straight to the promised land. But there's clarity. One nation, one leader, one clear objective. Moses dies. Joshua takes over. There's still clarity. Joshua, now you finish a job. Get across the Jordan. Enter the promised land. Joshua leads the people in. He then dies and things do start to get complex. They're now no longer one nation gathered, literally camped around the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the place of God's presence. Instead, they enter the land and the tribes begin to spread out and claim the parts of inheritance which are going to be theirs, and that means that relationships between those tribes get stretched and decentralized, and uh, competing loyalties start to arise, and there are all kinds of threats from the surrounding nations. It's a complex place to be, and there are obvious parallels for us in the church that, as the people of God in Christ, all things ultimately belong to us. Christ owns it all. He is Lord of all things and in him we will possess all things. The nations are his inheritance and we will share in that with him. But at the moment as things are, we're living in a world which feels very complex and actually feels increasingly complex and as a sense in which we might feel that we're kind of surrounded by hostile tribes and nations as well. And so some things for us to see, some parallels for us to see between the experiences of the Israelites here and our own. And In complexity, what you want is someone to take charge. Someone who can just cut through the complexity and say, okay, this is the problem, this is the solution, follow me. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for leadership. We're looking for a king. And this is the big question that runs throughout the book of Judges. Who's going to be in charge? Who is going to lead us? Who's going to rule us? And we get to the final verse in Judges, Judges 21, verse 25, and it says... In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And that is not a description of utopia. We might think, hey, man, it's cool. Just do what you like. Just chill. No one's in charge. Just do your thing. It's great. No, it wasn't great. It was anarchy, mob violence, chaos, disaster. That was the point. Without a king, there was just all kinds of hideous stuff to happen. They needed a king who would maintain order. But the tragedy that we know is that from Israel's later history, when they, in the end, did get a king, that that wasn't enough to stop the anarchy and the chaos and the violence and the injustice. There's a more fundamental problem that's been revealed here. Peter Lighthart, in his book on which we're based in this series, says this, throughout the period of the judges, there is a king. In Israel, with his palace, the ark, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting set up at Shiloh. The problem is not that Israel doesn't have a king. The problem is that they won't follow the king they have. Instead, Israel wants to serve other kings. And so the Lord lets her have her way. This is a problem. This is a problem. This is the Adam and Eve problem. It's the perennial human problem, the problem that runs through the human heart, that actually this... In us, that rather than acknowledging the king, the king who really is, we want to enthrone in ourselves as king. I did it my way. I'll follow my own desires, my own instincts. I'll be my own boss. And what we see in the book of Judges is that leads to no end of chaos, violence, anarchy, and pain. So, let's look at the opening scene. We're not going to go through the whole book this morning. Uh, we're just going to look at the first... Seen first episodes in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, "'Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites?' The Lord answered, "'Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands.' The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, "'Come up with us into the territory allotted to us "'to fight against the Canaanites. "'We in turn will go with you into yours.' So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezak. It was there that they fought, found Adoni Bezak and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adoni Bezak fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adoni Bezak said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Joshua dies, everything changes. Who's going to lead us? Who's going to go first is the question. And it's always the question. Every society, every nation, every team needs a leader. It's just how it works. It's kind of wired into the fabric of the universe. Leadership is needed. The question then, of course, is, well, what's the selection process? Who gets to be leader? How do you choose? And in this case, the people of Israel make a good choice in that they go and seek the Lord and ask God, who should go first? Who should lead us? And the Lord says, Judah, the tribe of Judah. And um, This is kind of an incidental thing in the story, but it's not incidental because this is the first time that we've seen the tribe of Judah take leadership in the story of Israel. And, of course, that points to what's going to come, that when a king, the good king, finally appears, the good king who comes is David, who is from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus, in his human lineage, is from the tribe of Judah. So when the Lord here says, Judah's going to go first, what we're getting is a, a sign Something's been pointed to. There's, there is going to be a king, and he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Judah goes first, but Judah doesn't go alone. The, the tribe of Judah says to their brothers in the tribe of Simeon, come and help us, and then we'll help you. And they go together, they team together, and things work out well. That's what happens. Things work well when they team, when they partner together. And there's some application for us in that as well. Things go well when we team together, when we partner together. Things go well for us in local church life when we work together, pursuing the mission that God has called us to. Uh, that works also in terms of how churches partner together. One of the things I really value here in BCP is the strength and depth of relationship that we have with other local churches. I've got some very good friends, uh, pastors of other local churches, and there's a sense of we are in mission Together, we're partnering together to proclaim Jesus as BCP. And there's a fruitfulness about that. And then there's our other partnerships, particularly our partnership through the Advanced Family of Churches, where we partner intentionally, deliberately, to strengthen and plant new churches. And when you partner together, that brings fruitfulness. And that's what we see here with the tribe of Judah and Simeon partnering together. That's all good. But then we get this first sight of the violence that is going to come in the book of Judges. Jude, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Simeon, they go to war and they capture this king, Adonai Bezek, and they chop off his thumbs and his big toes. And of course, for us in our worldview, that is a war crime. If in Afghanistan, British troops had, when they caught Taliban, had chopped off their big toes and their thumbs and that would come out, there that, that would have been a huge scandal. Heads would have rolled. People would have lost their jobs. People would have been imprisoned. It's a war crime in our eyes. So what's going on here? What do we do with this kind of violence? I think there are five kind of principles I'd like to suggest which might help us to see what is happening here with the violence that's described in the book of Judges. The first principle is that we do need to be careful about judging other cultures through 21st century Western eyes, by judging other cultures by the standards of today. This is a particularly strong cultural narrative at the moment in our culture, to judge every other culture by the standards of Western 21st century culture. And we do that all the time. And the reality is that other cultures, different parts of the world, and different periods in history, have not been like 21st century Western culture. Actually, we are kind of the outlier. Other people didn't think like we do and act like we do. Actually, how we think in modern 21st century Western culture is different from how most people in most parts of the world, in most parts of history have thought. Just the way that people looked at life is very different. And there were good people in the past who did things which we would think are terrible, but within which the cultural context of the time were acceptable and normal. And of course, this feeds into many of our current debates and arguments and things like which statue should stand and which statue should fall. And there are very legitimate arguments to be had about all those kind of things. But we must be careful about judging other cultures by the standards of today. We need to be aware, actually, that's a very arrogant thing to do. And we need to be more humble than that. And so when we come and read stories like this, there are things which we say absolutely in our eyes, of course, war crime. But we need to be careful not to judge the standards of the past of other cultures by the standards of today. That's just a basic principle. Second thing which might help us to see is that the point here is that you reap what you sow. That the Canaanites were a grim bunch and Adonai Bezak reaps what he has sown. That's what he says. God has paid me back for what I have done. I have chopped off the thumbs and toes of 70 kings and had them scrabbling under my table for scraps. And now the Lord has paid me back for that and I've lost my thumbs and toes. And the point here, kind of beyond the violence, is that rulers reap what they sow. And without needing to name any names, I'm sure we can think of all kinds of contemporary examples of rulers who are reaping what they have So, again, it's a principle that seems to be woven into the fabric of the universe. The powerful, in the end, won't escape justice. And Adonai Bazak doesn't escape. He reaps what he sows. The third way to see this violence is to recognize that much of the violence in the book of Judges is kind of hyperbolic. It seems to be there almost, it's almost cartoonish, and does seem to be there in some ways for comic effect, Now, um, I grew up watching Tom and Jerry cartoons, which are unbelievably violent, (laughs) and uh, having a teenager in my house now, we watch a lot of Marvel movies, and Black Panther, and Black Widow, and Batman, and the rest, uh, Infinity Wars, unbelievably violent, just normal entertainment for teenagers, for all of us, and... I think what we have here in the book of Judges is something of that kind of cartoonish, hyperbolic painting picture of violence. That Actually, this is a book written about oppressed people for oppressed people. If you're oppressed, if, if, you're, if you're Jerry, what do you want? you want? You want Tom to have a boiling, hot frying pan smacked in his face. That's what you want. <laughs> if, if you're one of the Avengers, what do you want to do? Well, you want to smash whoever it is that's... Thanos and the end should be destroyed. That's, justice needs to be restored to the universe. And there's, that's what's going on, I think, in the Book of Judges. So This kind of extreme violence is meant to... We should see something of that kind of almost cartoonish sense to it. A fourth thing is that we do then need to be careful how we judge. I've already said that we shouldn't judge things through our, the standards of our culture today, but we also need to be aware how do we judge, because the reality is that many of us do consume extraordinary levels of violence whether it's Tom and Jerry or the Marvel movies or playing Call of Duty or whatever it might be, a huge number of people in our society consume extraordinary levels of violence. And then we can turn to the Bible and be awfully shocked. But be careful how you judge. Reality is that humans have a great propensity for violence and it always has ways of expressing itself. In our culture, it's kind of sanitized, safe. Safe video game, Marvel movie, but it always expresses itself somehow. And then the last thing and fifth principle, and I think, of course, the most important one, is don't forget the violence of the gospel. Don't forget the violence of the gospel. The, the message we proclaim, the hope we have, is that violence <laughs> has been done at the cross. The cross is an act of extraordinary brutality, an act of extraordinary violence. And it was through that act of brutality, through that violence, that we have been brought into a relationship of peace with God. At the cross, as Jesus was himself a victim of extraordinary violence, he dealt with, killed our sin, and dealt with our separation from God. It was the blood sacrifice of Christ which has enabled us to walk in peace with God. And so it's because of the violence of the cross that Christians now live in peace with God and can live in peace with one another. It's why as Christians we proclaim peace and seek to bring peace. It's why as Christians we're not to do violence to others but to bring the peace of Christ into situations because of the violence that was meted on Jesus which he dealt with and finished. See, the cross is the end of violence that in the end we will live in perfect peace because all violence will be swept away because sin has been violently dealt with in the cross of Christ. And so when we read these horrific, violent stories in the book of Judges, we need to see how actually they point to the resolution to violence, which is found in Christ. Second scene, Judges 1, verse 8. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They announced... They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kirith Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahaman, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kirith Zephyr. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kirith Zephyr. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Ophniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor, since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Three significant characters are introduced here. The first is Caleb. One of the two spies who went into the promised land all those years before, he and Joshua alone came back and said, yes, we can go. We get to Joshua 14. People have entered the land and we're given a picture of Caleb who says to Joshua, I'm now 85, but I'm as strong and vigorous as I was 40 years ago when you and I spied up this land. Now give me my mountain. Give me the land which is mine. Just an amazing picture of vigorous, determined, stubborn, persistent, faithful old age. I've been working for this for decades and you're not going to cheat me of it now. I might be 85. I'm not putting my slippers on and my feet up. Give me what I've been fighting for all these years. Amazing guy. We then meet Othniel, who is uh, Caleb's uh, uh, grandson and uh, nephew. And and, uh, and he is a, a... a great warrior, and uh, he, in Judges 3, becomes the first of the judges, becomes the first leader of the people of Israel in this phase. So it tells us in Judges 3 that he led, judged the people for 40 years. For 40 years there is peace. And so we see this Othniel character, that he is somebody who's actually able to bring the people into into the peace they are meant to have. He's a a great leader. He's a model leader. For 40 years, he brings the people into peace. And then we meet Aksa, this woman. And Caleb says, I'll give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the man who attacks and captures Kiriath Zephyr. Othniel, son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother, took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. Now, again, culturally, we find that very difficult. That Caleb says, we need to take this city. Here's my daughter. Whoever gets the city gets the girl. Come on, boys, who wants her? And for us, again, that's just kind of hugely offensive. It's not how women are meant to be treated. Very uncomfortable. Shocking to us. But Aksa was certainly not a pawn. What we see is that she is a woman who knows her own mind and knows what she wants. And so she gets married to Othniel. And we might find that a little bit odd as well because he's a cousin or second cousin. And that's a little bit odd to us as well. But she marries him because he's won the battle. But she also gets a dowry. She says to Othniel, ask my dad, give us some land. And then she says herself to Caleb, hey, we've got some land. Now give me some springs, give me some water. She is a woman who knows her own mind and sets her mind on what she wants and gets what she wants. And actually, she's a a picture of how a number of women are portrayed in the book of Judges. The book of Judges has this... How women are treated in Judges very interesting that there there are examples of what we would think of as toxic masculinity in terms of women being extremely badly treated by men in the book of Judges, just horrific things happening. But there are also two or three examples of women who... A very independent, very strong, who take command of situations, get what they want, who really stand out in a very powerful way. And Acts is the first of those. That she knows what she wants. She's, she's not just a pawn. It's not just that she's been a kind of a, a chattel, shared and sold between different members of, male members of her family. No, she, she's a woman who knows what she wants. I want this land. Let's get it. And I want some springs. She, she's like Caleb in that regard. Give me what I want. I want this. I need it. And she gets it. And uh, AXA represents actually a great model for, for women, and some of the other women in Judges do as well. Uh, the woman who takes the tent peg and smashes in the enemy's head. No sh- shrinking violet female there. And the book of Judges does give us this, this, this model of, of real forceful women who seize control, take commands, follow God and get what they want. Great example. And so there's things for us to learn here from Caleb and Othniel and Axa. Faithfulness, persistence, spiritual robustness, toughness. That it's not wrong to ask for things. This year as we seek the Lord for new adventures of faith, let's be like Caleb and Othniel and Axa. Let's be persistent. Let's be courageous. Let's not give up. Let's be bold. Let's ask. Let's take command of situations. Let's grab hold of some extra lands. These are great examples for us to follow. Next scene, Judges 1, verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. You start to see the mixed fortunes of the tribes. They win some battles and lose some battles. And the tribe of Judah has done so well, they've gone first, they've taken ground, but they can't defeat the chariots of iron. And the question that poses is why? Why? Because it says the Lord was with the men of Judah. The Lord was with them, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots of iron. What's going on? I think what is being suggested here is that was it, is it they can't take the ground or they won't? Because the Lord is with them. And if the Lord is with you, you can. And yet it says they can't. And I think what is being suggested here is that, similar to what happened when the people were first meant to enter the land 40 years previously, there's actually a slippage of faith. If the Lord's with you, you can, but they don't. And there's a warning to us here, that even if you're doing well, even if you've taken ground, there comes again and again that question of faith. Can we do it this time? Will we do it this time? And Judah have done it, but they get to this point and they don't do it, even though the Lord is with them. Now, Gateway Church, the Lord is with us. And we have taken ground and we've taken steps of faith and we're doing that. But that isn't done and dusted and over. There will be, again and again, moments when we have to kind of decide, are we going to believe that God is with us and take the ground? Or will it be, no, we can't, because the obstacles are too big. The giants are too big or the chariots are too irony or whatever it might be. Judah slipped in faith. Let's not slip in faith. And then last scene, Judges four, uh, Judges 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bokim, weepers. Though they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Now, Gilgal is a place where the Lord had appeared to Joshua just before the battle of Jericho. And so this story reminds us of that, about God's grace, redemption, rescue. But this story comes with a rebuke, because the angel of the Lord travels from Gilgal to Bochum, the place of weeping. What's happening is that already this point of the story, the Israelites are reaching an accommodation with the Canaanites. Even Judah has not taken the ground that tribe should have taken. And what is beginning to happen, what we see again and again in the story, is that rather than the people of Israel standing clearly as God's people, they actually start to become Canaanites themselves. And God will not stand that compromise. God actually has this kind of dilemma. He has promised the land to the people of Israel, but he has also promised he will not give the land to those who are disobedient. So what's going to happen? Same question is posed in the psalm we started our service with, Psalm 4, verse 2. How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? And that's what the angel of the Lord asked the people at Bochum as well. How long will you... Love delusions and seek false gods. Which god will you worship? Which king will you follow? If you choose the wrong king, you're going to suffer the consequences. If you're not going to follow the true king, well, the true king says, okay, well, you get what you want. And the gods of these nations will trip you up and cause you to fall. And the book of Judges asks, makes us ask this question again and again. Which king are we going to follow? Who are you going to follow? So we read the book of Judges. We see this repeating cycle of disaster, repentance, God in His mercy sending a leader, things being stabilized, falling again into disobedience, disaster coming afresh. Again and again, the question comes, or the, we see the, the need. We need someone to sort out this mess. And some of them do. Othniel for 40 years keeps peace. Other leaders come and go, for a time keep peace, but there's never a real solution. In the end, anarchy. Judges twenty one twenty five. In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Anarchy, violence, mob rule, no security. And when we read these tragic stories, we of course look forward to the king who is coming. A king who will actually deal with the people's disobedience. A king who will enable his people to possess the land. A king who will cut through the mess and the complexity and bring clarity. And of course we see that king ultimately. King Jesus. We see him on the cross. We see Jesus from the tribe of Judah. We see Jesus who was perfectly obedient, who did what the nation of Israel failed again and again to do, Jesus who perfectly obeyed his father. We see Jesus as the true and ultimate hero, leader, judge, the one who, yes, will reap what he has sown, the one who has sown in righteousness and will reap a harvest of righteousness, the one who will gather his inheritance, the peoples of the earth to himself. Here in January 2022, in this complex world in which we live, and maybe even as we look at our own lives, and at times are disappointed by our own mistakes and failings and mess, what we need to do is look to the cross and look to the King. There is a King who calls us to follow Him. a King who has dealt with our sin A king through whose own violent death has enabled us to come to peace with God. A king who calls us to follow him faithfully, taking those steps of faith day by day, following him into new adventures and claiming more ground. Gateway Church, this year, let's keep following the king. Let's follow him. Jesus. We do. We choose again this morning to say, yes, we will follow you. Thank you that you are the king, you who was perfectly obedient, did all that needed to be done. Thank you that you're the one who did suffer ultimate violence in order to bring us into complete freedom. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the one who cuts through the complexity, brings us into clarity. Thank you, you're the one who settles our fears and brings us into peace and makes us minister peace, proclaiming to a confused and complex world the goodness of the King who rescues and saves. I pray for us, Jesus, that we would be faithful in following you and we'd be faithful in proclaiming this wonderful message of life and hope we have in you. Thank you that you're greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than Caleb or Othniel or Axa. You're the one who's able to bring us into complete possession of all that is to be ours in you. Thank you that in you we will possess all things. Thank you that in you we are rich. And so Lord, I pray that we would know the riches of Christ and the peace of Christ and the goodness of Christ, the kindness of Christ at work in our lives. And we proclaim and share that with the world around us. For your glory we ask it. Amen.